Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we've got an FX special. Up first, Ryan Murphy, talking about his latest series feud, Betty and Joan, starring Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Variety's Executive Editor of TV. I'm Maureen Ryan. I'm the Chief Television Critic for Variety. And it's our pleasure to welcome Ryan Murphy, the executive producer of many things on TV, but one of my new favorite series, Feud. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. So let's just start at the beginning. How'd you come up with the idea for this new one? This new one sort of began from a place of shame on my part in that I realized um, that I really wasn't doing enough or giving back to women in our industry. And I've talked to Mo about this, but she had written many articles about the topic of female directors in Hollywood that moved me and um, helped bring me to action. And between Mo's pieces and, you know, I really wanted a female director to do Marsha, Marsha, Marsha on OJ and had one and she fell out and I stepped in. And at the end, I was like, what am, why don't I have an amazing roster of women in my company on speed dial to come in and help me here. And I realized that I had failed. So in doing that, I formed the half foundation and our um, thesis statement was from that day on 50% of all the directorial slots in my company would be women. That's it. And also the crews. And I've been meeting since that day with all my department heads. the day we start production. I sit down with them pre-production and say, you know, you need to hire people who don't look like you, straight white men. We need to bring more women into this um, community. We need more people of color. We need more gay people. So it came from that. And in talking to a lot of women, as I began the Half Foundation, I said, well, tell me what can I do better and what's happening with you in the industry? What are your thoughts? What issues are you facing? And we talked a lot about ageism, misogyny, you know, unfair pay scale. And... Um, from that point, I said, well, I really want to do a piece about this. How can I do it? And I had been talking about doing a show called Feud, which was going, always going to be a two-hander. Um, and I owned a script that I bought in 2009 with Dee Dee Gardner and Brad Pitt of Plan B, uh, a blacklist script called Best Actress about the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And I had been talking to Susan and uh, Sarandon and Jessica Lang about doing it, but I decided like, I don't want to do an hour and a half movie about this because I don't want it to be broad and I don't want it to be camp. I want to really get into the issues of these women's lives in a deeper way. And then it was like light bulb moment where I thought, well, let's expand this to eight hours. Susan was into it. Jessica was into it. And let's use 
the jumping off point of 1962 and the making of that movie as a way to talk about things that are happening today. You know, when we did that, I think very successfully with OJ, which was a period piece talking about race and, you know, misogyny and all of those issues. So that's how it all sort of came together. But I honestly can say it came from me um, admitting that I was not doing enough um, and feeling very ashamed of that. And from that came great things and a great lesson for me in my life that, you know, part of the journey of getting better is to admit your failings and look at all the things that have come out of that for me. It's been quite extraordinary. Indeed. Mo and I have both seen the first couple of episodes and it really delivers on that. It is not campy. It really delivers a pretty powerful message. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I think it's, it's beautiful. It's art directed amazingly. It's got all the things (laughs) that I love. Like, I mean, I think, I think one thing it shares with, the pictures that these ladies made in their careers is like a real attention to detail and a real aesthetic sense in the way that you move the camera is very were you kind of trying to go a little bit back to those women's pictures and and how they were shot was that an inspiration for you it was it was i watched i mean i've always watched all of those movies i think i've seen every movie betty davis ever made i was a big fan growing up as a child and what i loved about them was kind of the opposite of what I had done, you know, in this modern world, you've got the steady cam, you've got the whip pants, you've got the handheld. And I was always mesmerized by those pictures because it was just still, it was very almost classically framed like a photograph. And I thought, well, this is a great way for me to get out of my own way, which I did, you know, um, we worked really hard on the production design and the costume design and, you know, slavishly copied what those women at women actually wore and how they lived and what couch they sat on based on our research. Um, and then with all of these wonderful things, I felt like, okay, it's my job just to have the camera be very still and capture that world and that artifice in a beautiful way. And that's what I tried to do in a way that I've never done on my career. And I, I've sometimes, you know, people write that they always get dizzy from my steady cam moves, which I completely own and get. But on this one, I was like, okay, let's just, quiet it down and when you're working with that level of women actor actresses like you don't need to do a lot except um really spend your time making sure that it it all was true and that emotionally the scenes are as good as they can be and that's what i tried to do talk about the performances because susan sarandon and jessica lang are really tremendous in the roles well they were the only two people that i ever thought could do these roles you know um and Susan had had been offered to play Betty Davis. She told me when I met with her in 2009, five times before. And she kept saying, why does everybody come to me to play Betty Davis? And I said, have you looked in the mirror? Like, you, <laughs> you look like Betty Davis. And um, Susan has Betty's fire, you know, uh, which I greatly admired. And Jessica had always told me, even before this script, her interest in that period of old Hollywood. So... I met with them both, and they had never worked together, and they really had wanted to work together. So that's how it, it sort of started. And then the other people in the cast, Allison and Catherine Zeta-Jones and Kathy Bates, uh, Alfred Molina, Stanley Tucci, in some cases, Alfred and Kathy I had worked with. But Catherine came to this project because I had a general meeting with her, and I said, I miss you on screen let's do something again to, to, to bring you back because I just want you back. And she said, I would love that. And she said, well, do you have anything now? And I said, actually, 
I do. And what happened with Judy Davis was I just simply called Judy Davis as a fan and I said, why aren't you working more? Do you want to work? I miss you. I want to see you on screens, you know, selfishly as a fan. And she about fell out of her chair and she said, well, okay. Like, <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, what happens with, with a lot of these women is, you know, once you hit 40, it's hard and they will all talk to you about that and have for years, I'm sure. So I always approach all of them from a point of fandom and then I just want to see them. And so I write these parts for them and I want to challenge them. And they, you know, Judy and Catherine and Jessica and Susan and Stanley and Alfred and Allison, I think we're all very terrified of playing real life people um, or being a part of something that's very historically based, but they were all up for the thrill. But that's how it all began. Same with Stanley. I just had always wanted to work with him, and I, I offered this to him, and he said yes without reading a script, uh, which I was amazed by and very flattered by. But that's really how I always do my casting. I just go after people I love or people I feel who've been neglected or have not had the opportunities that they should have and say, come on, let's do it. And I try and get them the best money and deals possible because they deserve it. And then I take care of them. And from that, I, I love them, and I think they feel it. And you get great work when you approach your craft that way, for me. What breaks my heart about that situation is just, I mean, even even if you just take the heart out of it, actually, these are people who are at, like, hopefully as you age, you get better at what you do. I mean, I think, for, if you, especially if you last in any industry, really. And so to, say, to take someone who is at the top of their game or approaching their top levels of their game and say to you, Oh, uh, we're done with you now. That has always struck me as the stupidest thing, just from a commercial standpoint, or from a, any kind of getting making a project. Like, don't you want to use people who are really have learned fact, so much? I know. In fact, that's one of the themes of feud. Yeah. Exactly. Well, only in Japan are um, older people venerated. Yes, and treated with the respect that they deserve. Culturally, in our country, they're not. I've seen that with my mother. I saw that with my grandmother. Um, yeah, it's it's it was amazing to me. I remember when I I asked to meet Kathy Bates, who has an Oscar, who's a legend, and she showed up in my office and I said, "What are you working on? What are you doing?" And she said, "Nothing. Nobody comes to me with anything." And I was so horrified for her, and she got very emotional because she had an amazing career and still had so much in her to give. And so I, I hear that over and over and over. And when you write pieces for women over 40, first of all, when you call them, they're amazed that anybody is still interested in them, which shocks me and makes me angry. Um, but yeah, I, our culture sucks in that way. And I think that we don't, tr I think that's not just in Hollywood. We treat women that way in a way that men are not treated at all. You know, I'm 52 and I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I just have figured it out. I kind of know, I just am stepping into my own. So at that age, Betty and Joan made whatever happened to baby Jane and they were over. So I really understand like, well, what? How would I feel if that had happened to me, if my engine was just getting revving and they shut the door right as I was beginning to sort of do everything that I had learned to do? That would be an incredible pain that I would never recover from. And so I think of that a lot with these women. Um, and it moves me. And it moves me that they're so appreciative and, and they feel so um, lucky. But, you know, I also feel in my job one of the most important things to me is to... Um, 
when I can't economically take care of these people as well. Because, you know, as Joan and Betty did, like they at the end of their careers, they work for peanuts. They work for like an eighth of what they should have been paid. You didn't see Gary Cooper doing that. You didn't see John Wayne cutting his paycheck. And I see it with women all the time, too. And when we were doing feuds, one of the things that was very important to me was to make sure that Jessica and Susan owned a part of the show. They are economic partners. And even when um, we move forward on subsequent seasons and they're not in them, you know, if we don't, if that's not the story we're telling, they will remain executive producers and will have a say in the story and will get money from it. That was very important for me to do because I thought, well, maybe that's, I need to treat Jessica and Susan in a way that I wish Betty and Joan had been treated. And that's, that's what I've tried to do because I think what happened to those two women was just horrifyingly sad. And I knew Betty Davis and got to spend time with her. And she was very um, upset what had happened to her and emotional about it. And it broke my heart then as it does now. That's a very long answer, but I'm very passionate about this topic, as you can tell. I can tell, but, you know, it's very relevant today. I mean, it was it was sort of horrifying to watch as we were watching the episodes to see how they were really pitted against each other. Right, and always had been. Consciously. It wasn't by accident, you know. People wanted the cat fight. They wanted the hair pulling of it yeah. in the press. And they yeah, just- you, you see it. You know, Susan and I were talking about it. You know, when she did Thelma and Louise, she and Gina could not have been closer. It could not have been more aligned. And all the press wanted to do and wrote about at the time was that there was cat fights and behind-the-scene maneuvering, and none of it was true at all. But I think that in our culture, we have this really hideous phrase in Hollywood, and it's called the it girl. And the it girl means the girl of the moment, the woman of the moment. And there's only one it girl at a time. But you never hear that about men. There's no it boy. There's no it man. And I think that women become indoctrinated and come up in the business fighting for that one piece of the pie that is there. I think they do it in all forms of business because that's always been how it's been. Um, uh, And that has got to change. And I think the show is really looking at that point of view about, well, why culturally do we do that? And why... But you're right. I mean, and Betty told that during the interviews that she really felt pitted against Joan throughout her career and particularly during the making of the movie to drum up publicity in a way that she didn't find out until later. And by that point, it was too late. And it was the tragedy of their relationship. You know, there's that great line in Baby Jane at the end where they say to each other, you mean all this time we could have been friends. And that's heartbreaking. And that's what the show is about. And that's what Betty Davis who died very shortly after my interview with her, um, felt that she had blown it with Joan. I, it's, you know, I think people make light of it, but sometimes you'll see a clip going around of um, an actress resisting a question on a junket or an interview. And, and what really bothers me is when the, the framing of it is like, um, this actress is making a fuss or this actress is being difficult. And when she's basically just resisting the premise, a sexist premise of a question or asking, why don't you ask the men that? And, and I, I mean, I don't know if it's, it means anything, maybe it's meaningless, but I feel like I see more women in positions of power speaking to these things in the industry. I I should say like producers, actresses, and, I think the pressure on them to remain silent is immense. But do you think you you know so many um, actresses and you work with so many creative people in the industry, so many women, do you think that there's a little more of a sense of solidarity? Because back then, as, as we see in Feud, it was 
almost non-existent. I do. I do think there's more of a sense of solidarity. And one, solidarity. And one of the things about me and my company, where I really have wanted to make this move towards hiring many more women, is I grew up as a minority. You know, I'm a gay man, and the first time I directed, I walked onto a set of all white middle aged men in their fifties who had never, I think, even been around a gay person before. And I remember feeling like, wow, I'm really, really alone here. And um, somebody pulled me aside, a friend, and said, I have one piece of advice for you, which is you need to, the first piece of film that you direct on your first take, say, got it, moving on, so that the straight weight, my, straight male crew will think that you know what you're doing. And I, so I went into my career feeling that way. But I do think that, that as time has gone on, I feel that, and also with social media, and I feel like women are just fed up and they're tired of it and they don't want to, there, people are now freed, I feel, in a way they weren't before to say, well, that's not cool and that's not fair in a way that they weren't bef- before. And I think one of the things that has happened is um, the behind-the-scenes uh, world is changing. You know, I think that men are in power now in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and many of these men were raised by mothers who came up during the Gloria Steinem feminism years and ERA and, and, and have a much different outlook than the generation before them. And, you know, so I think that those men and also the fact that more and more women like Dana Walden are being promoted within these corporate ranks and they are saying, well, why does everything on television have to be a white, straight anti-hero? Haven't we seen enough of those shows? Didn't we just go through a decade of that? John said that to me. Um, and, I think that they are helping pave the way and open doors, uh, you know, in an, our allies, so to speak, in a way that's different. So I think everything is sort of colliding uh, at once in a great time, but I still think that there's so much work to be done, and I think that people, you know, need to speak up. And one of the things, interesting enough, when I was doing with Few that I said to Jessica and Susan was like, I encourage you to fight. I like it when you say no or you have a very strong opinion. Like, you need to know right off the bat that I'm that kind of guy and that's how I want to work with you. And I remember Susan sort of looking at me in a weird way and we have moved forward in that way. And I like that she challenges me and the crew and the men. And I think that that takes um, generations maybe to sort of change a little bit, but I do feel like things are getting better. You've certainly found a creative home at FX and with Dana Walden at, F- at 20th Century Fox Studios where you can tell those kinds of stories, these limited series. What does that mean to you creatively? Well, I love the sim- limited series format because, um, you know, I think that in our culture right now, which is very ADD and it's clickbait and on to the next, that I think it's very hard to spend and commit to five years maybe following a character arc. I know for me it's hard. Um, there's always exceptions. Like, I can't wait for season two of The Crown. I will admit it. I can't wait to see what she does. I know what I'm she does. <laughs> but um, it's also a way to get talent. I mean, you know, you're not going to get Jessica Lang, I think, again, to commit to a five-year run of a series. Susan either. Um so it's interesting in that way. But what I love about my home and what I've been able to do with um, Dana and John and Peter Rice is uh, they really sort of allow me to follow what I'm interested in um, in, a, in a really, really joyous way. You know, when I started Feud, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be the hardest thing in the world to set up because it's about two women in their 50s making a movie. 
there's there's 15 roles for women over 40. And I had drank the Kool-Aid in our business that everybody was like, ah, nobody's going to watch that. That's going to be a really hard sell. Box office poison. Box office poison. <laughs> Who wants to see that? And um, I called John, who's my friend and partner, and 30 seconds into the pitch, he said, sold. And I said, what? Really? You're going <laughs> to you buy it? You were supposed to do that? <laughs> and he said, I want to see that show. And I think it's about time that there were more we need more shows on the air with very strong female leads. So it's people like John, not just me that are trying to change the business, but um, I have a great opportunity and I'm, I'm allowed to sort of take risks. And what I just do now is I really try and challenge myself by doing something that moves me and helps not just tell a story of today, but maybe one that I wish could happen. You know, I'm very obviously based on my work into social issues. And I really try and lean into that the more I get older. And I have two children now. I want the world to be different for them than it was for me. And I feel like, okay, as a father, I have to walk the walk. And I try to in a way that I never did before. Well, you certainly have been. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Nice Ryan. to talk to you Thank guys. You, Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. So that was Ryan Murphy, one of the busiest producers in Hollywood. Up next, TV critic Maureen Ryan and I sat down with the creators of The Americans, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, to find out what's in store for this season. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Variety's executive editor of TV. I am Maureen Ryan, and I'm the chief TV critic for Variety. And it's my pleasure to welcome the executive producers of The Americans. We have Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. We're excited to talk about the season of The Americans. Season five. So tell us, where do we find Philip and Elizabeth when we come back into the season? They're a little well, stressed out. Yeah, they're a little stressed out. Think of how badly things ended with uh, Philip having to say to Paige, whatever you do, don't date the son of the FBI agent next door. And, you know, she's a teenager, so is she going to listen? No, of course not. That never ends well. If never he had well. said, please date that guy, she would have been like, no way, man. That been <laughs> exactly. How did he much, not do that? He's such a smart strategy, manipulator. Yeah. We can't believe he didn't yeah. do that. It's psychological... You know, you know what it is? psyops it's, is a thing. You it's know, tougher when you're, it doesn't matter how well trained you are when it comes to your own kids. You blow it. It sneaks up on you. That's no, true. never yeah. goes well. Yeah. Never goes well. So they've taken on a new set of identities coming into the season. Yeah. They, they're going to have to parent somebody else on top of everything. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have enough problems. They didn't have enough problems. One and more family. That, and how's that going to go for them? Well, can you think of anything in the whole history of the show that has ever gone well for them? No, not so much. No, we don't think we'd have a show if anything ever went well. It's so that time that they went well. to Epcot. That went great. <laughs> <laughs> if it's off screen, yeah. anything yeah. off screen can go well. Family vacations go well. He's been blissfully well for photos. Pastor Tim up until now. <laughs> that, that guy has no idea how good he's had it. That's true. Yeah. The, the, the real moral of the story is Pastor Tim has just had a golden charmed existence. There's a value to being a good liberal minister. That's true. Other than the time he vanished, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it worked out okay. They just true. ran We've out of We've all gas. been there. Yeah. Yeah. And they Everyone were trying to help a little worried. Um, can I ask? Margot Martindale is back in the season premiere. It's not a spoiler to say that we love Margot. How like how many other P- Gabriels back? Frank Langella's Gabriel. How? First of all, do you want to bring them both back a lot? And then are, are there going to be other familiar faces that we've seen from the past come back a lot? 
or a fair amount or any amount? Well, we, we will see plenty of both of them. I think we can say that without uh, giving away too much. Yeah, I think that's a very, very clever way of trying to wring spoilers out of us. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the actors that I like, and I want to see them a lot. And I don't actually care if they're just doing a song and dance routine. Like I, Whatever you have them doing is cool with me. <laughs> well, you'll see old faces and new faces. I think there are going to be a lot of... Uh, uh, new characters who are going to be really, really interesting. You know, as as you know, we lost some people. We lost some cherished old characters last year. You're going to make us cry now. <laughs> yeah, it's upsetting for us too. It's, it is. It's moment very, of silence. It's, 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 it's very. It's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. But uh, you know, we needed to bring some new people in to take up that story space, and it was very fruitful for us. We have some interesting new people. You met some of them in that first episode, but there's still some more, some more coming, and we're very excited about those stories. So some fun returns, and we hope some exciting new turns too. Yeah, and there's a lot happening in moscow crazy stuff going on in moscow right? we're spending a lot of time in moscow this a lot season. of time in moscow as if, as if it was the show's destiny all along funny that <laughs> <laughs> makes you think yeah. it does makes you think it makes you think well we've we've been following these russian characters undercover here it only seems fitting that we finally get to peel back the onion a little bit on what life might have been like then there so it seems great. Like everyone has a tan and has tons of food all around. Like that's right, exactly. They're uh, living surprise. the life. Well, that's probably what some, some interesting choices created. <laughs> exactly. We, we had flashbacks before in a communal apartment, so you saw more of the uh, everyday life. But then it just so happens the character we have to track was in the privileged elite, so you get to see what what it was like to live a little bit large. But he won't be the only one. There'll be some more who you'll meet who will not be have their tables covered in fruit baskets and fancy salmon. Oh, interesting. Yes. I'll, we'll be up and down the socioeconomic scale, so to speak, in in Soviet Union of that time. To some degree, yes. Is part of that storyline to, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, obviously there's the contrast that is drawn in the media of the time and in the cultures of the time between the two countries. But I think to me it seems like you're trying to set set some context for where these Russian characters are coming from and why certain changes that we see later in an actual time came about because there was just the lines and the, you know, the lack of access to Western products, that kind of stuff. Are you trying to kind of open up that context a little bit more for where the Soviet characters well, are? I don't think that's our goal. Okay. You know, our goal is to is to really follow the characters in the story and see where they go. But but when things happen from that, we we're happy to do it and happy to happy to notice it but um i don't I, you know i think we're always trying to avoid saying if we can show something that then explains what's happening in the future we always think of that as dangerous territory because we don't we don't want anybody to look at the show and say here are the writers and they're prescient in any way we want to be <laughs> we want to be just as we, we always say it's a bubble we want it to exist in a complete bubble of of the time mm-hmm. so then the way to accomplish that is to just try to show things that were real and to just just show things that were true um, maybe, you know, now that I think about it, maybe that it's been an ironclad rule for us, and it is possible that we broke that rule a little bit in that opening montage for the season premiere. We did get a little bit into the lines and, and, and the harvest and whatnot, but that wasn't for the purpose you're saying. It was really more because we have this story arc going on throughout the season that has to do with food and agriculture. So we were really, we weren't so much trying to hit on uh, relative economic systems and how they were doing. We were really trying to just show stuff that had to do with agriculture and food. I was waiting for you to say we we're trying to set the table for the season, Joe. <laughs> it was right 
right there. It was right there. It was waiting for you. It was right there. Oh, God. <laughs> but you've also been good about showing things that happen at a certain moment in history and then how it gets reflected through the lives of our characters. Is that something we're going to be seeing this season as well? Well, we're certainly going to be capturing moments of the 80s, the early 80s. But this season is actually not a season where we're going to do a lot of specific date cultural events as we did in the past, particularly last season. Uh, part of that is just through a weird habit stance of production. We moved through time so slowly that when we got to this season, in order to be honest with our calendar, it would be snowing in June. So we sort of decided <laughs> just to live in the truth of the early 80s without getting date specific. Uh, and that's sort of freed us up to tell the, the character's story, but hampered us in the, in, in the sense that we can't show particularly iconic cultural moments, uh, but we can show some cool iconic cultural movements, and that's been fun. In your calendar of the show, how do you explain how Henry is now three feet taller than when the show started? <laughs> he was irradiated. <laughs> it's makes, a backstory. It makes sense. I get it. Yeah, I understand. We're and like, we're he, denial is what yeah. we go with. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, last Speaking, season there was – last season – Unfortunately for him, but fortunately for us, he broke his ankle. So for the several episodes, he was seated. And then when he got, stood up, he was just a foot and a half taller. But this, we have no excuse this year. He, the kid just keeps growing. I sometimes walk around the office muttering, he looks like he's 20. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of denial, will Henry remain as clueless as ever? Well, uh, we won't get into the specifics of, the specifics of that, but we will tell you we think we've got – more Henry's story to explore this year than we have before, and we're pretty excited about how it's going to unfold. Looking forward to seeing that. Well, speaking of the kids, too, um, so we had seasons where... I mean, what I love about each season is that there are these amazing plot turns and character arcs, but it seems like there's kind of like a... There's often a through line, say, the couple grappling with the page question or page finding like so what is there kind of something this season that you really wanted to explore that's as you say everything is character based in the show and that's one of the reasons it's been so acclaimed and everything and that the performances are amazing so what wrenching terrible thing will you put these people i love through and like is there kind of a through line for that something along those lines it's interesting we've this season we've actually felt we can't talk about it the, the thing itself would actually kind of give away what's going to happen. Oh, okay. It's weird. The theme this season is a spoiler to reveal. Wow. But that we, could be a cover for we don't know what the theme is, or it could be true. <laughs> well, but I feel like if it's if it's centered on the Russian agricultural bureaucracy of the 80s, I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's riveting I'm stuff. Really t- I'm, I, I have to be honest. I'm very tired of that as, as, a, as, a, as a prestige TV, TV, uh, TV I mean, it's so overplayed. Yeah. 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 We don't want yeah. 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 to do it. It's a trope. It's a trope. It's a trope. again? What? Westworld played that one out over and over. Look, we didn't know about that storyline when we... They were boxed. You present it when does it next season? We're going to be pissed. Yeah, <laughs> I can just Go imagine the guys. pitch session in like John Langraff's office. I'm like, there's going to be a lot of peasants on the collective. This is, you know, people always say, "What's what?" There's so many great things about FX, and we always talk about what's so great about FX. And the second they heard that, John Langraff was like, "I think that's very interesting." Yeah, <laughs> I think so. A lot of a lot of people laboring in the fields and picking potatoes out of the ground. But talk about FX. What has that creative freedom offered you? Everything. Really, the ability to make this show. 
it's not just a matter of creative freedom. It's a matter of creative support because in some senses you could think, well, creative freedom is just being left alone to do whatever you want. But I think we feel that what we get from FX is much more than that because they're the best, most insightful first audience members you could ever hope for who are constantly responding to our work and challenging us with questions about the themes we're exploring, the stories we're exploring, the characters we're exploring, and helping us to look back at the material and and make it the very best that we can. And they're also collaborating with us on just the highest level and supporting us in all of our choices so that we feel so that we feel not only free but supported to make it the best it can be. And we feel really lucky to have them. I mean, I'm sure you get all kinds of feedback. And now you're, you know, you're so deep into this show's run that you can name all. But I mean, can you cite any specific examples of someone's, you know, one of the executives, a piece of feedback that really stuck with you or just had a had an impact that really helped? I mean, we could we could do that all day long. I'll just give you a very recent one. It's going to be hard because it hasn't happened yet, so I won't do it with specifics. But there was a whole storyline this season that's coming up and the network was like you should literally take that whole storyline and move it up three episodes and it's going to change the whole kind of tenor and pace of the show and of the season and we were like huh <laughs> that's a good fucking idea <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and you just can't overstate how like we're in it in a way where we didn't see the problem or the solution and they in that case a lot of times they'll see the problem and give us sort of directions towards the solution but sometimes they'll see the problem and the solution and in that case you know it just it reframes everything and and takes a show that might have been okay and or a season that might have been okay and makes it good or might have been good and makes it great. I mean, it, they just save our asses. Is uh, a good way to I'll it. give you another example from this season of, of them saving our asses that will make no sense until later because nothing because you haven't seen it yet. But there was another very intense character storyline we were working with. And we got a, a variety of calls from different people at the network saying that it wasn't quite playing for them. And we couldn't wrap our minds around what their issue was. We really didn't see their issue, let alone the solution, which they didn't have. They, we just didn't quite see it. And then John called. And John Langraff is brilliant and has been was extremely involved with us in the first season of the show. We would talk to him multiple times a day and, and work on the scripts and deconstruct them. But as the series went on, that just became less frequent. And I remember at one point in, uh, I think it was the third season, we actually called him up because like neurotic children, we, 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 we asked, are, are you liking everything or are you just too busy for us? And he had to tell us, no, no, I like everything. You'll hear from me if there's an issue. <laughs> so this season, sure enough, there was an issue. And he called and started by asking what we were trying to achieve with the story. And we spent five minutes explaining to him what was very clear in our heads about this character storyline. And he said, ah, I get all of that. I'm getting that intellectually. I'm not feeling it emotionally. And a bell went off for us. And Joe and I took a long walk. And within 24 hours, we wrote two new, two and a half new scenes, two new scenes and a new ending for another scene in one of the episodes that we then went, went back and reshot. And I, I think for us, 
that new material that was triggered by that general thought from the network and then the specific comment from John about how we can feel it more emotionally, I'm convinced that that not only made that episode better, but that will transform how that character's story is experienced for the whole season. It's incalculable, the difference that'll make. That's probably the first time we've done reshoots since season one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Talk to you about the actors that you work with. I mean, it feels like they're pretty much creative partners of yours. Uh, well, they are. I mean, we talk about it. It's interesting. We talk all the time about what a pleasure they are to work with. They're just the greatest, you know, group of people you could ever be doing anything with. They're just fun and interesting and, and collaborative. And we just have such a good relationship with them. But as, as you're asking a sort of related or related question, which is, you know, how do we collaborate on on making this show? And, and, you know, it's sort of interesting because, you know, we don't find necessarily that we're sitting down constantly and going over, you know, every script with them. There is a degree to which, you know, we, we're, we're writing and, and they're over there shooting. But they're really... You know, they've created these characters. I mean, they've made these characters with, with, with what they do. And I think there's a way in which we just sort of have a mutual respect for each other's process that is that is very intense. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we've watched the characters evolve from the work that they do. And, and so that when we write, for example, we have this ability, we have this kind of freedom to to we we know what they're going to do with something or what they can do with something and it gives us this freedom to kind of write write and explore these subtleties and and also not really worry if something is kind of unclear or subtle and because it because we know that they can do it five different ways in any of the choice or to 100 different ways whatever choices they make they'll find it they'll create the scene themselves in a way we don't have to make it this or that specifically and in a show where the whole show is about subtlety uh, it, it's a, it, that's just a kind of fascinating, interesting kind of collaboration we have with them. Yeah, I'll say three other quick things about that. One, we always have very extensive tone meetings with the director of every episode where we talk about every scene in detail and go over the emotional dynamics in detail. And we hope that some of that makes it through. Clearly, it always does. Just today, we got an email from Carrie early in the morning. And, you know, it's just an interesting example because – they were getting ready to work on a scene, and there were two different tones one could take with the scene. And she saw that both of them were legitimate, and she could relate to both of them, and she wanted to know which one had been in our head when we wrote the scene. And we were able to have an exchange with her that I think moved it toward more towards what we had in our head. But most importantly, I think our, one of our greatest pleasures on the show is having all those conversations having that communication with the director, with Carrie Matthew, with Chris Long, our directing producer, and then being surprised by the way they find truth in expressing these characters, seeing it differently than we had in our heads, but finding that that, that has its own reality, humanity, and truth is, is just so much fun. Matthew Reese, um, I, I just found it so heartening in a way. I mean, he's Obviously, the whole cast is amazing, but the work Matthew and Carrie has done has just been revelatory in so many ways. But I mean, was it particularly pleasing that Matthew directed an episode that got so much acclaim? And I don't even know how he balanced his work on camera with his work behind the camera in that episode. He must not have slept very much. But um, was it was that were you blown away? Speaking of surprises, 
his direction of that episode was so wonderful. He's directing now again and doing a great job. And Noah Emmerich, by the way, has been directing mm-hmm. on the show. And his episodes are just standout. But. Yes, it's, both of them have done really brilliant work. I think that's been a special thing to see and, and also to think about the fact that these two guys who are in the show and the way that they're in it, are, there's obviously not a coincidence that they're able to, to direct in such a special way. And I'd say it is also just really gratifying finally this season to see their work as actors. It's been recognized for so long by the critics and those awards, but to see the Golden Globes recognize them and the Emmys recognize them with those nominations, it's very gratifying. They sure deserve it. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I mean, it's a long time in coming, but certainly much deserved. Well, and they're so, you know, the kind of people they are, they're the... I truly believe that had they never gotten any nomination at all, I don't think that would bother them much. They're just not they're just not like that. But in a way that makes you all the more happier for them when they when they get that. You have to say a favorite moment of mine in the last year is the phone call that the four of us had right after those nominations came out because it was just so giddy and fun. Uh and that's a pretty nice thing for a couple of big television stars. Sure. I mean, it's got to be rewarding, too, for a show in its fourth, now fifth season to sort of finally get that recognition. Oh, it was fantastic. As we've been you know, saying for a while, we spent all these years pretending like it was no big deal and who cares. And then like, oh, my God, that's it was fantastic. I still haven't gotten over it. Yeah, I'm still not sure it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think it was Joss Whedon who once said awards don't matter until you get a nomination. And then those people are geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Basically. <laughs> so I have to ask one more thing before we let you go. Um, where, what is the status of Male Robot this season? Has that contract negotiation been difficult? What's that? Very glad you asked that. Okay. Obviously, we think about the male robot a lot. We worry about the male robot a lot. We really don't want to give a spoiler. Okay. I think we can let you know that there have been some problems, both contract issues, health issues, a lot of shit going on. Oh, no. But if you are a fan of the male robot, you're going to have to be a little patient. Okay. It's not going to be like... The mail delivery will be a little delayed. It's, it's not going to be mail robot all season long, like okay. some seasons, but we have not forgotten no, mail robot. It's still the early 80s. Email has not yet come to the FBI. Thank goodness. Because okay. we, we've seen the problems that happen yeah, with the emails. Yeah, some problems. <laughs> yeah. uh, they still have some problems. By the way, the mail robot was bugged. They got nothing. It turns out they should go back to the mail robot. I think that there, between, a solution. between yeah. Halt and Cat Fire and the Americans, they should prevent, they should go into their time frames and prevent the invention of the internet. <laughs> oh, man, for so many so reasons. Many problems so many problems would be We have solutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank, thank you. Guys. you. Really hope you enjoy the season. listening to this week's show. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We're talking to the cast and creators of American Crime. See you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.